Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined today by two of our great reporters, Megan Messerly and Jackie Valley. Say hello, guys. Hey, John. Hey, John. Thanks for coming. Uh, Another busy week in news, and of course, we were all over it. In fact, there's news breaking even as we are doing uh, this podcast on Friday afternoon. Megan, you've written a lot about this issue of so-called sanctuary cities and sanctuary communities. What's the news? Right. So the Department of Justice informed Clark County today that they are not a sanctuary jurisdiction. They didn't say that in so many words, but they basically sent them a letter saying that you're in compliance with this section of the U.S. Code, and that section of the U.S. Code basically says that local jurisdictions have to communicate with federal law enforcement, including federal immigration officials. Um, And you can't have any policies that inhibit that communication in any way. If you do, you're at um, risk of losing all these different federal grant dollars that um, local law enforcement gets from the federal government. Um, That's been an issue for some time. Um, Metro has been worried for a while that um, the Justice Department believes that they're out of compliance. They've been included on some of these, you know, non-compliant lists from the federal government saying that maybe they're a sanctuary city, uh, dating back to a 2014 department policy. Um, and so basically today was the first, you know, A-OK, you guys are in compliance, your federal funds are not at risk. And this is a this is a big deal because they had talked about this during the session, uh, legislative session, they could lose, I think it was $9 million in federal funding. I think some people might be confused, uh, though, Megan, about what, what this really means. The word sanctuary is so highly charged. We're not a, the, the, the Clark County folks who sent out the press release about this said this means we're not a sanctuary community. Uh, Michael Roberson, the, the, the Senate minority leader who wants to run for lieutenant governor and Adam Laxalt, the attorney general who wants to run for governor, have talked a lot about uh, uh, cracking down on so-called sanctuary cities or communities. There may be a ballot uh, initiative. What does it really mean? Is there an accepted definition? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, no, there's not really a uniform definition of what it means to be a sanctuary city. You have cities like St. Francisco that actually have passed um, sanctuary city ordinances, you know, and they've described themselves actively as a sanctuary city. Um, We've never done that here. Um, That's not something that Metro has ever uh, strived to do, but um, the label has been applied to them nonetheless. And it has to do with the way that local law enforcement cooperates with federal immigration authorities. And that's why jurisdiction are often labeled sanctuaries as if, um, say, you know, federal immigration authorities, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, you know, they see someone who has a a criminal history, has been detained by Metro, and they say, hey, we want that person. Um, You know, whether or not Metro holds on to them for a little bit of time, that's sort of where the label sanctuary comes to (laughs) compliance. If, you know, ICE says we want them and Metro just lets them walk out the door, then that might be why they would be labeled a sanctuary city. Um, But actually, Metro does have some level of compliance with ICE. As long as ICE provides them with this um, certain form with written probable cause, they will hold someone for a short amount of time until ICE comes to get them. And this came up uh, uh, at least a little bit when Jeff Sessions, the the attorney general, was here uh, visiting uh, Nevada within the last 10 days or so, right? Yep, yep. So this is, so Metro has long insisted that they're not a sanctuary jurisdiction. They actually, you know, actively cooperate with federal immigration authorities through uh, this something called the 287G program, which allows some of the officers in the jail to carry out 
some immigration activities. Um, and so they've, you know, for a long time said, hey, we're not a sanctuary jurisdiction. We're, we're cooperating. We're, we're doing what we need to be doing. Um, and they've tried to say that for a long time. Um, the Justice Department asked for proof from them. They sent them over all these documents. Um, but it was sort of for the first time when uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions came to came to town and sat down with uh, Sheriff Lombardo. Then finally, the next morning, I guess they had dinner together one night. And then the next morning, Jeff Sessions had a press conference. And he said, you know, based on the conversations I've had with with your sheriff, it seems like you guys are cooperating. You know, it doesn't really seem like you guys are uh, sanctuary jurisdictions. So we're going to have to look into that. So do we think this is going to slow down the, the, the move by uh, Michael Roberson and Adam Laxalt to put something on the ballot? Do you think they're going to say, oh, everything's OK? Uh, we don't need to do this? What's your guess on that, Megan? I mean, I would say <laughs> if Sanctuary Cities polls really well, an issue, you know, um, they're probably likely to keep that up, even if it's sort of been settled. Have I turned you into a cynic already? <laughs> My goodness, the way you think. Well, this is what's called a segue, Jackie. There is no sanctuary in this state from the issue of what? Pot. And you covered a really interesting ruling uh, this week from the, the state Supreme Court. What happened? So the state Supreme Court ruled that the names of owners of medical marijuana businesses are not open information to the public. Um, this stems from a case about two years ago when the Nevada uh, or the Reno Gazette Journal was trying to get their information from Sparks. Sparks gave them the business licenses but redacted all the name and other identifying information. So this has been uh, winding its way through the court system and finally the Supreme Court ruled earlier this week and they basically overturned the district court decision which had said yes you need to provide the names. Uh, the court's ruling sided with the city, saying that, you know, the Nevada statute and regulation concerning medical marijuana specifically states and offers confidentiality for those businesses, so we're not going to do anything against that. So it remains at a standstill. Uh, however, State Senator Tick Segerblum already said that he's upset about it. That was never the intention of the legislature at the time to completely make it secret. They just wanted to protect protect the uh, financial information, like is the case for gaming businesses as well. Um, talked to different lawmakers yesterday. No one was totally against uh, opening and giving their names, including the Nevada Dispensary Association. They said that they haven't been actively pursuing uh, confidentiality. Uh, most of them are out and about in the community uh, publicly. Uh, they said that their only worry, again, is just the uh, financial nature, especially because it is a cash business. It's just, it's, to me, such a classic Nevada story where, you know, the first thing that you said, people probably thought they heard the podcast wrong, that the owners' names can be kept secret. Yet it is in the law. The Supreme Court, if you read the ruling, essentially said, listen, this is in the law. We, we have to go by the law, right? That, that, that was what it is. On the other hand, and you mentioned the great analogy there to gaming. Yeah, you don't expect MGM to release all this proprietary information about its financials, but we know who the, 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 the people are who run. MGM, we know we know their names, and so and Tick Segerblum, who you mentioned, is of course the godfather of, of all things marijuana. Uh, did, did you get a sense that, that he is going to actively pursue having this law, this regulation changed? He was uh, really adamant about it yesterday. He said he was amazed and shocked by it. Um, but when I asked him if it would be done before 2019, he said probably not. 
And so it's going to be up to them. It's not that they can't release them. I mean, they could voluntarily, like we could all identify ourselves today. We don't own pot businesses. I don't think anybody here does. Uh, you guys can tell me differently, but we, people can do it voluntarily, right? They're not yeah, prohibited. And, and that's what he, he pointed out. To his knowledge, every jurisdiction except for Sparks has uh, released that information when they've been asked for it. Um, for whatever reason, Sparks took a hard line on it and decided not to. Yeah, I, I cannot believe that this thing is is, is, is going to last. Uh, before we get back to uh, 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 Megan, one other story that I thought that uh, was really well done that you did this week, Jackie, was this, uh, you, you had this combination of this nice welcoming ceremony for all these new teachers, but do all these new teachers know that they're coming into a school district that has all kinds of problems, right? Well, if they've been reading news reports, they should, should be up to speed. The NevadaIndependent.com, but... <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, is, uh, it was definitely a tale of two worlds on uh, Tuesday because, uh, you know, while the district's top leaders and superintendent were in one building discussing this heavy budget issue um, and potential freezes to teacher pay in a casino, which is <laughs> very Vegas, by the way, <laughs> a whole horde of new elementary school teachers were meeting for the first time and getting inducted into the Clark County School District. And so that atmosphere was very celebratory. And, you know, the HR people say definitely by design, that's that introduction welcome ceremony, they consider the first step of retention. So they want to make teachers feel comfortable and appreciated. You know, how they'll feel in a year or so after being here is another question. But they were excited to get in and start the new year. So what is the actual financial situation? You've actually done pieces about how the, the, the district can't even keep a, a CFO around, right? Because mm -hmm. the financial situation is very dicey in the school district, even though there's been all this talk, right, about all this tax increases to help education, that to, to bring the school districts back. They still have a problem. They're, they're freezing pay. Uh, mm -hmm. that They have potential deficits, right? Yeah. Um, they're saying now that it's a $45 million deficit heading into the upcoming school year. Um, they're blaming it on a variety of factors, including an arbitration arbitration ruling in favor of the administrators that happened earlier this summer. Um, they're having to pay out multi-millions of dollars for um, raises for those folks. Um, meanwhile, there's the ongoing contract negotiations with all the other bargaining units. Uh, the biggest one is obviously with the teachers union. Uh, so there's a myriad of issues there. They want you know, higher pay, uh, money for their health trust, et cetera. So there's no easy answer, it seems. Uh, I, I think they're at the point where they're trying to figure out how to make cuts and handle the situation going forward. But at the same time, the arbitration hearing with the teachers union is set for later in August. So it's, it's going to be iffy until all of that is hashed out. And I gather the always outspoken John Valerdita, who is the head of the local teachers union here in Clark County, is very skeptical of the school district's numbers, think they're poor-mouthing for exactly the reason that you're suggesting is because they're going into this this big deal with their contract, right? He mm -hmm. thinks they're not telling the truth, that they have money, you know, uh, hidden away in some box somewhere, right? Yeah, and, and that's been his contention for a long time. Um, you know, he points to the administrator's union as proof, because when they asked uh, for more money, the arbitrator in that case ruled in favor and said, no, CCSD, you have the money and you need to pay it. So he's sort of uh, operating on that assumption that the same can be done for the teachers union. However, it's definitely shaping up to be a pretty explosive arbitration hearing between the two parties. Yeah, John Valerdita is never going to be a wallflower. I, I, I don't think we, Jackie did a great profile on him. Uh, you can go on our site uh, and, and, and look for that. Uh, Megan, let's talk about some campaign news. Uh, 
uh, th that happened uh, this week. Uh, there was a well-choreographed announcement. Uh, uh, two members of the same family, about a half hour, 45 minutes apart, uh, announced uh, their candidacy for, for legislative offices down here in southern Nevada. Most people may not know the name Hanson that well, but they're a very well-known name, uh, certainly in northern Nevada. Yeah, so um, Assemblyman Ira Hansen, um, you know, we've known for a while that he's been interested in running for Senator Gustafson's seat. Um, as people might know, um, I don't know if we mentioned on the podcast when it happened, we probably did, but um, Senator Gustafson announced that he was retiring, that he wouldn't run for a third term uh, in the state Senate. And as you mentioned, Assemblyman Hansen's been interested in the seat for a long time. Um, he was originally going to run for it when he first ran back in 2010. He sort of worked things out with Senator Gustafson, and they figured that, you know, Senator Gustafson would run for Senate and um, Senator Assemblyman Hansen would run for um, his assembly seat. So they kind of sorted things back out. Um, but we know that Assemblyman Hansen's always been interested um, in running for the Senate seat. Um, and so as soon as he announced uh, that he would be running for that Senate seat, like you mentioned, about 30 minutes later, his wife, Alexis Hansen, announced that she would be running for Assemblyman Hansen's seat. So now she will she could be Assemblywoman Hansen and he would be Senator Hansen. Um, and they announced on their 30 37th wedding anniversary, no less. <laughs> uh, what a gift they gave to each other, right? And they went to see the movie Dunkirk uh, that did. night. You had that, yep. that great detail in your Yep, in I, they bookended me with their phone call. She called me before the movie and he called me after. So I got to I got to preview the movie. And then did, did Ira Hansen give recap. you a review of the movie uh, at all? You know, I don't. We talked a little bit about it. I think I think he wanted more um, more exposition and more of the historical context in the movie because it was obviously very. Someone else thought that too, didn't they? <laughs> you did. Yeah, I, I did indeed. You did mention the same thing. Yes, to me. Uh, I actually think Christopher Nolan's a genius, but I don't think it's his best movie. But uh, I could talk about movies all day in the podcast. That's for another podcast. But we should give people a sense of Ira Hansen too, because Ira Hansen's a very controversial figure. In fact, he was going to be uh, a, a leader of the Republicans uh, a couple sessions ago. Uh, and then essentially uh, uh, some columns came out that he had written uh, when he was, I would think, with the Sparks Tribune, if I remember correctly. They were very controversial. Some were seen as homophobic. Others were seen as racist. Uh, he's a very outspoken guy. Uh, he is generally marginalized by, in the legislature, but he, 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 he does have very strong views. He's a smart guy, actually, uh, I think. I think that think of him as not just one of 42, but one of 21. Uh, was he eagerly embraced? by the Senate Republican caucus when he announced his candidacy? You know, he, he was not. Um, I reached out to uh, to the caucus um, and Senator Roberson, Michael Roberson, who leads the caucus, said in a statement that it was, you know, way too early to talk about this. You know, we're still in August of, of 2017. Filing doesn't open, you know, till next March. There's plenty of time to, to figure this out, um, but it's way too early to be thinking about these sorts of endorsements. And then I went back and looked and, and found out that they endorsed Senator Ganser and then Carrie Buck, who was running against Senator Woodhouse, um, pretty early last fall as well. So it's, it's not a, like they always wait till the filing. It's a telling deadline. sign that they're not willing to, <laughs> to embrace uh, uh, Ira Hansen uh, uh, right away. I'll get back to some more campaign news, but since you mentioned Senator Roberson, let's talk about Senator Roberson a little, uh, Jackie. You you attended a speech uh, that that he gave, and, and uh, if I had to guess, I don't think Senator Roberson is much interested in Senate Republican leadership conference business uh, anymore, is he? <laughs> Doesn't appear that way. I mean, he uh, spent the bulk of his time recapping the session, but, you know, he was really 
plugging the campaign season ahead without actually announcing anything. Uh, he was asked point blank whether he intends to run for lieutenant governor, as many people are speculating. Uh, he said he wasn't going to announce anything today, um, but he had ruled out two possibilities, and that is running for re-election or uh, running for Congress. So that's where he stands on the election season. However, he did make a pitch for everyone in the room to call uh, Attorney General Adam Laxall and encourage him to run for governor. So he's sort of setting the stage. Now that's a ticket. I mean, that's obviously, I mean, uh, uh, what, what's going to happen. And of course, he was he made a call for Republican Party unity, of mm-hmm. course, which Michael Roberson understands very well, having lost a primary a couple of years ago uh, to Danny Tarkanian for Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think his specific wording was, let's put aside the squabbles within the party and focus on the real issue, which is defeating Democrats in the next cycle. Uh, You know, it had to have been at least 20 or 30 minutes of him picking apart all the Democratic proposals from this last session. And uh, his fear is that if, you know, we elect a Democratic governor and then the House and Senate stay Democratic, that all of these proposals uh, that he termed radical are going to come to fruition and we're going to turn more into a California-looking state than one in uh, the Wild West. <laughs> Doesn't that sound horrible to you, Megan? California, <laughs> horrible state. I love <laughs> it entirely. <laughs> Actually, I think his words were, we might even be worse than California. Worse, oh than, Cali- worse than California. Oh so, you know, just give people some uh, perspective on Michael Roberson from the session, uh, Megan. I mean, he was, as the minority leader, he was throwing bricks the entire session. He was clearly trying to get over the the problems that, 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 that he had with being the governor's point man on that big tax increase in 2015. And so he was portraying himself as, as a rock rib conservative, but he was also just throwing bombs at the Democrats the entire session, right? Yeah, pretty much left and right. We got a lot of fun statements in our inboxes from <laughs> uh, from Michael Roberson and many fun uh, visits to the press room as well. Um, yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, he, there were a lot of issues he picked up on. You know, he kept calling it the session of the felons. You know, every mm-hmm. time Democrats are pursuing criminal justice reform, it was just session of the felons, session of the felons. You know, they don't, they don't care about victims. They only care about the felons. Um, and so that's something he really hammered home, like you mentioned the sanctuary city issue as well, obviously, um, was, was a big one and one that he sort of hammered home and said, you know, that Democrats don't care about your safety. You know, they're just focused in protecting these, you know, criminals. And, and, sp- and speaking of that primary that he lost last time uh, to Danny Tarkanian in, in what's Jackie Rosen's seats now, Jackie Rosen barely beat Danny Tarkanian. Uh, there was an announcement uh, from, from another for- former legislator this week who was running in, in that district. Oh, tell us about that. Yeah, so former Assemblywoman Victoria Seaman announced that she's running for Congressional District 3. People remember that she ran for state Senate. She was an Assemblywoman during the 2015 session, um, you know, pretty conservative. Uh, she announced this week that she's running, um, had some pretty strong words for uh, state Senator Scott Hammond, who's also running in that district. You know, he's a little bit more moderate, has gone along with the governor on, you know, some of his proposals, voted for the the tax increase in 2015, which obviously Assemblywoman Seaman did not support. She was hammering him hard over that. Um, so that is shaping up to be a really interesting primary between the two. What's interesting about that is that Seaman managed to win a state Senate primary uh, last cycle by hammering another guy who's a pretty conservative uh, guy, Irv Nelson, but he, he had uh, over the tax increase as well. So she clearly thinks there's a replay, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, and we saw that come up a lot in a lot of the primaries last 
time around, right? You know, that was a big issue. It was a, like we mentioned, it was a problem for, you know, Senator Roberson. It's a problem for sort of any of those, um, you know, moderates or even conservatives who, you know, went along with the governor and said, you know, we, we need to do this. We think this is the right thing for Nevada. Um, but then when it came time to, the, you know, go to the ballot box, a lot of voters were really unhappy with that decision. And it's interesting. People may not be familiar with this, but Scott Hammond is is like a hero in, in, in the school choice community here and even nationally. He is the guy who really had the bill for education savings accounts, right? Yeah, he is. And he really pushed that hard. You know, he, he pushed it hard in 2015. He pushed it hard this session. Um, you know, we, we were there for all the sort of end of session negotiations, all the back and forth and, you know, the effort they put in to try and make that happen. Um, but it just ultimately they, they couldn't, you know, get together a deal, um, you know, the Democrats would agree to. And, and so everything sort of fell apart at the last minute. But yeah, he's been, like you mentioned, not just here, but, you know, he's a well-known figure in the sort of school choice world. You know, he's gotten a lot of donations from sort of national well-known school choice folks. He's just very plugged into that community. And we should tell people that is known as Nevada's swing district. It's very close in registration. And yet the Democrats don't have an announced candidate yet. There's some talk that Susie Lee, uh, the philanthropist and education advocate who ran in CD4 last time might run, but there's no Democratic candidates in what is probably going to be one of the most watched districts in the country, right? Yep, yep. It's wide open right now. And this is an interesting district. Like you mentioned, it's a swing district. And it's a district that, you know, Democratic Representative Jackie Rosen won, but Donald Trump also won, you know, so right. it's, a, it's a very diverse district. So, Jackie, uh, speaking of diverse places, uh, mm -hmm. you decided that what you wanted to do as soon as you got back from vacation <laughs> uh, a few days ago is go out to Bunkerville. You said, you called me and said, John, I desperately <laughs> want to go to Bunkerville. Isn't that what happened? That's exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, it was a... Uh, Quite the jarring change in scenery. <laughs> Went from uh, beautiful green waters to... Uh Bunkerville, which Now, is... tell people why, why, you, why you really went to Bunkerville. Yeah, so uh, Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke was in town touring Nevada's National Monuments as part of the uh, monument review spearheaded by President Trump's executive order in April. Um, so this is a saga that's been going on for a few months now. Um, the, direct, or the Interior Secretary was charged with looking at monuments that were established after 1996 and more than 100,000 acres in size which includes Nevada's only two monuments, uh, Gold Butte and Basin and Range National Monuments. So, you know, there's been a lot of back and forth in the months uh, since the executive order, you know, with supporters saying, no, no, let's not do this. And then, you know, the Washington folks um, or the Trump folks saying, you know, this is about listening to the people and not letting government intrusion make these large monuments. So it uh, culminated in a visit uh, from the secretary on Sunday. It was actually cut short by a day because he had to hurry back to D.C. for a cabinet meeting. But he did visit the, the two monuments in Nevada and then met with reporters on Sunday evening in Bunkerville. Uh, you know, it was kind of hard to rationalize. You picture interior secretary wearing a suit being in Washington, D.C., and then he arrives in hiking boots and a cowboy hat. Uh, so Playing he, the part. Yeah, you know, he appears as this down-to-earth dude who just got back from a hike. Um, you know, as expected, he didn't really offer too many specific thoughts on the two monuments. Um, kind of walked away with the impression that he's leaning toward reducing the size of them. Um, he outlined some of the concerns he has. Uh, didn't outright say he'd be looking at elimination, though. Uh, Which has never been done and never been tested mm -hmm. anywhere in the and, courts, right? And, and he acknowledged that. He said, you know, if there was any rescinding of national monuments, it's probably ultimately the court's decision as to whether that can be done. Uh, but, you know, he noted that he really wanted to preserve uh, some of the land's traditional uses. Uh, he pointed out ranching, um, hiking or hunting and fishing, that type of thing. 
Uh, he's also worried about uh, maintaining public access so people can easily easily get back there and aren't banned from doing so, um, as well as infrastructure upgrades um, so that power companies, utility companies can do whatever they need to on the land as well. I think some people listening, this this national monument is, is a term to me a little bit like sanctuary cities <laughs> in terms of you see the name means something different to you depending on what your orientation is, right? It's supposed to signify something great, uh, but the people who are opposed to it think it's it's not really a monument. It's essentially uh, taking away land. Uh, the, this, is the, this was done. There's different processes for doing this, but the President Obama used something that most people have not heard of called the Antiquities mm-hmm. Act to do that, which, you know, a lot of presidents. Uh, have done going all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt in a bipartisan way. But it's uh, explain, Jackie, a little bit about what it means if something's a national monument. Essentially, it doesn't mean that nothing can happen on that land, right? No, it doesn't. And in fact, uh, you know, as everyone points out, it as soon as a monument is designated, it actually draws more visitors to the area because all of a sudden it's like, oh, we have to go see what's out there. Um, you know, it's meant to just be a, another protection uh, for that area. Um, so that, you know, there's no private development on it or whatnot. Um, So President Obama, you know, he designated a whole host of national monuments and set a presidential record in the process. Uh, So President Trump has been kind of against that and said he overreached his executive power and created these massive acreage-sized plots, you know, which could hurt the local economy and go against the residents' wishes. Um, Interestingly, I talked to some people in Bunkerville on Sunday, and you know they they were all concerned about it as well. They were in favor of some sort of a reduction. They said they're environmentalists, but they just think it's it's too much and it needs to be pared down. We know how much President Trump is opposed to executive power, too. <laughs> uh, indeed, real, real quickly, Jackie. The, the, then there was a postscript to this story because the next mm-hmm. day you had some advocates of national management, some some familiar groups like Battleborn Progress, and I think Dina Titus mm-hmm. was at the, this news conference. And what did they say? Yeah, well, they were pretty upset. Uh, they said, you know, they were supposed to be meeting with him Monday at 10 a.m., but instead they were in an office giving this press conference because he had to shorten his trip and he just wasn't able to meet with everyone. What really irked them was the fact that um, it came out that Attorney General Adam Laxalt had accompanied Secretary Zinke on one of the tours of the monuments, and they said, you know, what's his business doing so? You know, it just looks like a, a political event or stunt uh, to promote him as the potential governor's can- governor candidate. Maybe he just wanted to see the, the beauty of, uh, of the National Monument. Isn't that possible? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Boy, I've got these two cynics already. And I, I, I'm supposed to play that role here at the Nevada Independent. Uh, and, and so we, we don't know. Do we know of a timeline here, Jackie, when this could be decided? Uh, he's supposed to issue his recommendations to the president by August 24th. All right. Well, we'll be back to talk about those recommendations on uh, this podcast. Uh, Megan, of course, uh, your your main beat for the last few weeks has been health care. You followed all the votes in, in, in Washington. Uh, let, let's talk first about uh, the news uh, this week about yet another letter that our governor signed on to uh, to, to uh, the administration. And what, what, what did he say? Right, yeah. So so uh, the National Governors Association sent this letter um, about expressing concern about cost-sharing reduction uh, payments and the continuation of these payments, which are really important for people who don't know. I mean, you, you don't really hear about them because they happen behind the scenes. But it's basically payments that the federal government makes to insurance companies to keep costs low for people to basically be able to afford insurance. So make sure that premiums don't go up a ton. Um, so a lot of people 
people have been advocating for continuing this. Um, obviously, the governors are really concerned, you know, re Republican and Democrat alike, um, about the continuation of these payments because sort of the whole, you know, any state's healthcare system is is built on, you know, sort of the status quo and the exchange is continuing. And if people can't afford premiums, then what happens? And, and you have, um, like, what we've seen here in Nevada with insurers pulling out, you know, not having insurers in 14 of the 17 counties right now offering insurance on the exchange. Um, it's something that's just really important to the stability of the market. And, you know, even in talking about the future of what healthcare looks like in the state, you know, insurance companies can't decide if they're going to come to Nevada, who they're going to provide coverage to without knowing that those payments are going to exist, because that's such a crucial part of the way um, that they're able to provide service right now under the Affordable Care Act. And National Governors Association, which Brian Sandoval, uh, the Nevada governor, just recently became the head of, and that's why this right. is so important. Yep, that's correct. And, I, you know, as everyone knows, you know, the governor hasn't been quiet on health care, you know, with, with this. Obviously, this has to do with more the exchange side of things, but, you know, obviously with the Medicaid side as well, um, because, you know, Nevada's, you know, health care market is sort of fragile and on both sides of the equation. So uh, I, I'd like to direct people who uh, who have not seen it yet to, to another piece that you did uh, last uh, Sunday, I believe it ran, which was the whole odyssey of Dean Heller, who's been a critical vote on this, all going all the way back to when he ran uh, for the Senate against Shelley Berkeley in 2012 and was all for an Obamacare repeal to all the votes that he took, including finally voting for the so-called uh, skinny repeal. But there's been even more development since then with Senator Heller and what's going on. They're on recess now, but there's right. now talk maybe of resuscitating this whole thing, and Heller is right in the middle of it again. Yep, yep. So last Friday, we're recording this on a Friday, but last Friday, um, there was a meeting between um, the president and then uh, Senator Heller and Senators Cassidy and Graham, who have all sort of put forward this pro proposal. Originally, it was from Senators Graham and Cassidy, and then uh, Heller signed on as well. But they sort of had their own proposal for, you know, what should be done with health care, and they met with the president about this last Friday. Um, and essentially, what this plan would do is it would block grant the money right now that is currently going towards states that opted into Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. So states that wanted to basically expand Medicaid to cover all childless adults, so pretty much everyone at 138% of the federal poverty line or below. Um, so the states that chose to do that, which there are 31 of them. And then also the certain there's all these other federal dollars, right, that are going toward, um, you know, ensuring marketplace stability, like we mentioned, these cost sharing reduction payments um, and what have you, the tax credit and all that. So there's sort of these two federal, you know, lumps of money right now that are that are going out into the world. What this proposal suggests is to combine those two, you know, chunks of money into this big pot of money and then it would block grant the money to states. And so what that means is every state would basically get a chunk of cash and they would be able to do with it what they please. They're now outlined certain, you know, different things they could do. It could go toward, you know, helping high risk pools. It could go toward direct payments to providers to sort of subsidize costs. It could go toward, you know, helping people with out-of-pocket costs. So there are a number of certain prescribed things it could go to. But their idea is that, you know, this is a very like states rights type proposal, right? So we're going to give states the flexibility. They can have this money. They know what's best for them and their population and their healthcare, you know, ecosystem system and whatever state, and they can make the decision that's best for them. Um, so this is something that, like I mentioned, Senator Heller signed on to, um, you know, saying it could sort of help the, the Medicaid situation here. They talked to the president about it on Friday. Um, and then on Monday, there was a meeting uh, between Senator Cassidy and then Health and Human Services Secretary Tom Price talking a little bit more about this. So we're kind of in a wait and see position right now. We don't know what's going to happen with it. Like you mentioned, the Senate just went on recess. So now they're on their August recess. The House is also on their August recess. So we're sort of in this you know, wait and see mode. But this is sort of the only, you know, 
proposal of any substance that's on the table. So it's at least a starting point for discussions. And we should say, since I want to wrap up by talking about what, what uh, you guys have coming for, for the weekend, uh, that, that uh, uh, and most people will uh, have their first ability to listen to this podcast on Saturday, that you have a piece uh, that essentially analyzes all, all parts of this. And just one thing to talk about, because you mentioned some people might think, oh, this is a great idea. You send a pot of money to the states, and then the states are the best at knowing where the money should go. On the other hand, there's some analysis, right, that shows that maybe it wouldn't be so great because there might not be as much money, right? Right. And so so that's a difficulty. One, there's this formula, um, and it allocates the money un- unevenly to states. And how it actually kind of looks right now is Nevada actually, you know, tends to be on the benefiting side, and there are other states like California and New York would probably be on the losing side. So at least in the short term, you know, we, we sort of come out ahead. But the problem with, you know, block grants in general, you know, states like them because they like the flexibility they afford. But the problem with block grants in general is ensuring that they grow enough. Because if they don't grow enough, you have, you know, a state with increasing needs. Um, one thing that people might not know, so, you know, there's regular cost of inflation, but, you know, medical inflation is actually higher than the regular cost of inflation. So making sure that the block grant is keeping up with the cost of medical inflation is really important and ensuring that that money actually covers the actual cost of providing services. Otherwise, you know, it falls behind. If it's falling behind inflation, that, that money's actually growing, you know, is, is becoming smaller. You can do less with that money over time. Um, so it, in, in short term, it, it looks, you know, better for the state, but long term, it could be not so great. So go on to NevadaIndependent.com this weekend and take a look. Uh, uh, Megan's got both Senator Heller's point of view. She's got uh, a, a left-leaning think tank's uh, point of view and a deep dive into that. Jackie, what do you have coming this weekend? I have a piece about schools. Uh, the Clark County School District is opening up a whole bunch of new elementary schools uh, in about two weeks. And so the story is a look at what constitutes a modern day school and how it might different or differ from what you and I attended when we were in school. Uh, so, you know, just one quick hint of something cool that I thought was included was they have traditional water fountains, but then they also have a, a filtered water dispenser above the water fountains that is for students to fill their water bottles, um, but it's electronic and tracks how much is uh, being filled. So teachers or the schools can incorporate that in their curriculum and say, Mrs. Jones' class drank eight bottles of water today. <laughs> so it's just technology like that that you know promotes learning in different ways. Well, well, I will say uh, that sounds like a really interesting story, but I will say that uh, I feel very flattered that you think that you and I would have gone to the same kind of elementary school. <laughs> Jackie, I think they were very, very good. The technological advances at yours were probably more than at mine. Uh, uh, Jackie and Megan, thanks, thanks for coming uh, uh, on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It's all the time we have. Uh, for this edition of Indie Matters. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, yes, praise, we love that, email us at ideas, that's ideas at dnvindy.com. As I mentioned before, please check out the site, thenevadaindependent.com. You can also rate us on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. Please do. We're available on Google Play and all kinds of other platforms, uh, too. I, I want to thank, as always, our great hosts at KUNV here, a great staff, great facility, and they always give us water, which is very, very important. So we sound good. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, who's our great uh, UNR uh, intern who makes us all sound. What's the expression? Do you guys know? Listen, that's Megan being podcast smooth <laughs> right there. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Ralston. We'll talk to you next week.